All right, Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphas around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, My Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Now return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these, except Michael, your prince. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. And Father, we look to you that we might 
receive instruction, we call on you, O Father, that you'd be pleased to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your precious word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. When I'm studying a passage of Scripture with the eye of preaching on it, and for that matter, really, it's become pretty much a habit. Uh, When I'm studying a passage of Scripture, whether it's a devotion in the mornings or in the evenings, I'm always looking for something unusual about the passage, especially something that is perhaps in this passage that isn't found anywhere else in the Scriptures. And, of course, when you apply that test to the text we just read, uh, you get a, if I, if I were to put the experience in one word, I, I think I'd have to call it jarring. Um, it's a very jarring passage. Um, if, you, if you haven't come to that conclusion, you haven't wrestled with it. Um, this is a, indeed a very jarring passage. And uh, if I might use two words, I would say it's a jarring revelation. But uh, after the initial jarring of this passage, it becomes a very eye-opening revelation. So if I might use six words, I would, I would say it's a jarring and eye-opening revelation. And I think that would just serve well for the title of the sermon this morning. A, a jarring and eye-opening revelation. Now with that introduction, why don't we dive in and, and get started uh, really looking at the first verse we see there's a time frame set there, isn't there, in verse 1 of our text. We're told that the time frame is in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, uh, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, is very significant because that's the year where Cyrus issues the decree for the Jews to go back and begin rebuilding the temple. And you remember I've been saying over, over the last couple of weeks that we really need to make a conscious uh, effort to remember the context because it's very easy to forget that Daniel and the faithful have been exiled out of Jerusalem for 70 years. It's been 70 years since anyone's been in the temple, since anybody has worshipped in the temple. Uh, We could imagine the condition of Jerusalem at this point. Imagine a... Uh, a structure that's been abandoned for 70 years, what that structure would look like. And had that structure been ransacked 70 years, we could begin to imagine uh, grass and foliage and uh, who knows what else uh, among the, the wreckage. This is the condition. Uh, in uh, Ezra uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, shed light on this, uh, the importance of this event of Cyrus. Uh, issuing a decree to rebuild the temple. Ezra writes, quote, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, one of the interesting things about this passage is this idea about the Lord stirring the spirit of Cyrus. Now, we, we see here that somehow the Lord actually uh, was stirring uh, the will and the volition of this king 
uh, to make good on a promise that the Lord had made. And he had published that promise through Jeremiah. But earlier in that, he had published the promise through the prophet Isaiah. In fact, approximately 150 years prior to Cyrus issuing the decree, through the mouth of Isaiah, uh, God spoke about these things. Uh, it's it's a, an amazing thing I want to remind you. I'm going to read that text to you, but I want to remind you that Isaiah is saying these things 150 years before Cyrus comes along and issues this decree. Isaiah says, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Now listen to this part. Who says of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited? Okay, at this, at this time, Jerusalem is inhabited. Babylon hasn't come and sacked it yet. Imagine hearing this. It'd be like someone saying in the United States, I mean, who says of the United States it shall be inhabited? We'd be like, what? It is inhabited. I mean, it's, it's, there's people here. I mean, look. oh, no, no, you see, um, this is all going to be sacked approximately 80 years from now. Of course, they don't give a time frame, but this helps us take this in. She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. It hasn't been ruined yet. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus? Notice Isaiah calls him by name, 150 years prior to the event. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose? Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus records a story where Cyrus was given a copy of the prophet Isaiah, where he himself read this passage and was so impressed by its predictive abilities, reading his very name in this uh, ancient passage, that he was moved to work on the decree. Perhaps if this story is true, perhaps this is the way that the Lord stirred Cyrus's heart to make good on his promise. I don't know, but back to our text. Cyrus has issued a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and begin the rebuilding process. Uh, but those of you who are familiar with books like Ezra, uh, how does it go? We can, we can only imagine the anticipation. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Imagine being in exile for these 70 years. Uh, undoubtedly, they've been praying for the restoration of these things. They've been praying, they've been praying, they've been praying. God has been silent, he's been silent, he's been silent. All of a sudden, here comes this, this decree. Cyrus comes along, just like God said he would. And he issues the decree. And now we're all excited. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. We're going to, we're going to build this thing. How does it go? You don't need to turn here, but listen to Ezra's recording of the, of the situation. He says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All of the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of, Jerusalem, of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what's going on here? Well, they go back to Judah, they go back to Jerusalem, they begin rebuilding the temple, and it's awful. 
they have a terrible time. And they become so discouraged that they quit. We could stop and make application of that right now. I mean, I, I, this so often happens in ministry. You know, you, you, uh, you go to Bible college and you get all excited about ministry. And then you go to seminary, you get excited about ministry. And then you get out in ministry and it's not, maybe not exactly the way you thought it would be. Uh, maybe it's a little harder than you thought it was going to be. And this doesn't just apply to uh, folks like myself. Uh, we can get all excited. We come to Christ. We get excited about the gospel. We get out there. I remember back in the days when we had our music store, I thought, wow, I got to do this. This message of the gospel is so glorious. All I got to do is help people understand this. And, and uh, they're, they're going they're gonna to want, they're, they're want Christ. Um, hello. It can be very discouraging, can't it? Now, I'm sharing all this with you because this is the backdrop of verses 2 and 3. You see, if you look back to our text, you see the words in those days in verse 2. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. What's Daniel mourning over? He's mourning over the way things are going. And verse 4 is very significant here because it tells us that it's the first month. What's so significant about the first month? The first month of the Jewish calendar. That's the month where the, the, the Passover is celebrated. This is to be a month of celebration. Daniel hasn't forgot about the Passover. Okay, even though the worship is not taking place in the temple and everything. We, we've learned from Daniel 9 that the Passover and the, the deliverance, God's deliverance from Egypt is still very fresh on his mind. And it would normally be a month of celebration. But what is Daniel doing? He's mourning and fasting. And this really brings us to the first part of our text that's jarring. Where is Daniel at? He's by the Tigris. Where's the Tigris? He's in Babylon. Let me say, what? Cyrus issued a decree and Daniel didn't go to Jerusalem? No. Of course, commentators, they all talk, they, they offer solution. Why didn't Daniel go? Well, we have to remember, 70 years have gone by. Daniel was probably a teenager whenever he was carted off to Babylon. Now he's a very old man. He's in his 80s somewhere. Maybe he was too old for the journey. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's all that's going on here. But perhaps that had something to do with it. Maybe we thought, what could an 80-year-old man have to do with the physical work of rebuilding this temple? I don't really don't think that's it either. And, you know, in my preparations this week, I came across a pastor that was, that was developing this particular passage. And he... He pointed to the fact that, you know, that you'll note there's no motorcade here. You know, for the first 10 chapters, Daniel's been the guy, hasn't he? It's always Daniel's the guy here. You know, through this whole exilic period, Daniel's the guy. Now, wouldn't you think Daniel, I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't we form a, a motorcade and find some kind of car, maybe a convertible or something, you know, something that we can put the top down and we can raise Daniel up a little bit so he can go through the streets and, uh, 
Uh, shouldn't we be doing something like that? I thought that was an interesting application. We don't see that going on, do we? Fact of the matter is we never see that going on in Scripture. I think the closest thing we might have to anything like that is Jesus' uh, descent down the Mount of Olives and what we call the triumphal entry. But that's not exactly that, is it? No. What's Daniel doing? What, why is he back in Babylon? Well, for one thing we can say here, he's not personally experiencing the difficulties of trying to survive out there in Jerusalem. He's not personally experiencing the hardships of rebuilding the temple. But uh, he is very much indeed identifying with the suffering of the church. Daniel has remained behind, and I think why Daniel has remained behind is because he is supporting this prayerfully. And I would, I would even go as far as to say this is the most important part of the work. He's mourning. What's he mourning about? He's mourning about the fact that the rebuilding has ceased. He's mourning over the condition of the church. He's mourning over the, the, the hardships that the people of God are suffering here. So he's identifying with them by abstaining from the privileges that he has in the city, namely food at his disposal, namely wine at his disposal, namely the anointing, I think, points to uh, the various lotions that were available. You know, they're living in a dry, arid climate. Uh, these, motion, these lotions would be, uh, would be great to have for the skin. Daniel's saying, no, none of that. Not while the people of God are, are suffering like this. Uh, none of these luxuries. And we can, I think one of the most challenging things that we have in our text here is we can make application of this right now. I mean, in the midst of our luxuries and, and pleasures, quite often we don't have a clue as to what's going on with our brothers and sisters elsewhere around the world, do we? And here's the part that has really challenged me this week, and I've I'll share it with you. How many tears uh, have we cried over the last week or so over the suffering of our brothers and sisters elsewhere in this world? Have we even given them any thought at all? Or uh, how many tears have we cried over the horrible spiritual condition of the church? Now, we're really good at critiquing it, but how many tears have we cried over it? Not Daniel, he identifies with the suffering and uh, situation. I, something I want to share with you. I'd like somebody maybe to hang this up somewhere where you think it's appropriate, but this was something we received in the mail uh, here recently, and this is the ARP missionaries uh, for 2016. And uh, we have uh, pictures of the individuals and families that are serving some are serving in, full -time, in a full-time missionary capacity. Uh, some are just uh, serving on various trips. But, uh, um, and some of these folks are friends of mine. Uh, it's good to have these things around because it's easy to forget about. It's easy to forget about these folks. But back to our text. Um, verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, 
as I was standing on the bank of the Tigris River, verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Now notice the description of this uh, visitor. He was clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. If we would have been familiar with the garb of the high priest, we would have identified this. This would have reminded us of the high priest. <clears throat> Verse 6, his body was like beryl. Beryl is a, a precious gemstone. It comes in many different colors. We're told his face is like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches and his arms like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. And uh, we learn here that the presence of the heavenly visitor caused those who were with Daniel to scatter out of there, didn't it? And Daniel's left alone to fall flat on his face. He's devoid of strength. He's in a deep sleep. Now, I think the question that we're all going to ask of this text is, who is this? Um, who is this visitor? Uh, the description of this visitor makes us think of John's vision on the island of Patmos. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, but... Even if you've never made it to the end, if you've just simply made a start at it, uh, you've certainly come to the passage where John describes Christ. Uh, he says, uh, uh, he describes Christ this way. He says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. We see a lot of similarities there, don't we? And um, uh, furthermore, we, we see these, uh, uh, this lightning uh, in the description, in Daniel's description, uh, that uh, this visitor had the appearance of lightning. That would make us think of uh, God's appearance maybe at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. It may make us think again of uh, maybe Revelation 4, Revelation 11, where we have these appearances of God and we have this, this lightning. Uh, there's a song that's in our set list that we sometimes uh, sing called the Revelation Song that has uh, lyrics in it that, uh, that uh, describe this uh, peals of thunder, uh, if you will. And this has led many to conclude that this visitor is God himself. Uh, others conclude that he is, uh, that he is Christ uh, there's a problem with that interpretation, however. I'm going to save that for a couple of minutes. But before we go there, let's look at the next jarring thing. Uh, in verse 10, the heavenly visitor touches Daniel's unconscious body. Uh, Daniel now, he's, he's getting up. He's on his hands and knees, but he's still trembling. Uh, then the man speaks to Daniel. Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. So at this point, Daniel's now standing, but he's, you can see in the text he's still trembling. Uh, then the heavenly visitor comforts Daniel, verse 12. Uh, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Okay. Uh, Daniel is again encouraged at this point that God has heard him. But look what's said in the next verse. Look at verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, this is jarring. 
What, what's going on here? The, the curtain is being pulled back. What do I mean by the curtain? Currently, as we look around, we can't see into the spiritual realm. But all of a sudden in verse 13, the veil is lifted. And we can see into the spiritual realm. And behind the king of Persia, there's this prince of Persia. You see that? Who is this prince of Persia? He's an angelic being. What kind of angelic being? Well, what is he doing? He's opposing this heavenly visitor who's been sent by God. He's opposing him. Okay, so we have this angelic being who's opposing the will of God. What kind of being does that make this angelic being? He's a satanic angelic being. And he's a very powerful satanic angelic being. And this is the problem with the interpretation that sees our heavenly visitor as described by Daniel as God or Christ. I can't accept that interpretation because here this, this evil angelic satanic being is delaying this visitor for 21 days. And it's only after Michael shows up that he's free to go to Daniel. Listen, God doesn't need any help from anyone. Christ doesn't need any help from anyone. Christ, during his earthly ministry, as soon as he came even in the close proximity of these satanic beings, they shuddered, didn't they? They trembled. And when he ordered them around, what did they do? They immediately uh, hated his command, didn't they? So obviously our heavenly visitor, I, I take the interpretation that he is an archangel. I don't know whether he's Gabriel. He's not mentioned as Gabriel, uh, but he is an archangel. <clears throat> this is jarring, isn't it? But it's also eye-opening. You know, the veil is lifted, the curtain is lifted. What do we see? Suddenly we see deep into the spiritual realm and what's going on here. We see this evil angel, a powerful evil angel, directly opposing the work of God. And he's so powerful that he is stalling this archangel for 21 days. This is a powerful being, isn't it? A powerful and wicked being. Now we might ask, how is this battle being fought? We have... The archangel, and we have the satanic angel. <clears throat> how, are they, uh, how are they fighting with one another? Well, presumably, uh, the evil angel is influencing the opposition uh, of rebuilding the temple. He's influencing people uh, to, uh, to hate those who have come to rebuild the temple. He's influencing all kinds of obstacles that are being put in place. Uh, he is... Uh, creating, inciting, and arousing hostility. Uh, he is blinding men's souls with unbelief and hatred. We know that's the activity of Satan. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, speaking of believers, he says the God of this world has blinded their minds. He's blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, how is the archangels fighting against him? I would presume they're struggling against him to, 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 uh, in order to reduce his influence. To reduce his influence. Now, much of this is mysterious, uh, but there's one thing that's clear. There's a real battle raging on here. And uh, this is eye-opening because, listen, when the Persian Empire fell, this satanic, evil, angelic being 
didn't go find a lazy boy recliner somewhere and sit back and kick his feet up. We moved right on to the next thing. He moved right on to the next thing. And what's that mean for us? It means that there are powerful, evil, angelic beings opposing the building of God's kingdom. And they work through governments, through education. They work through, uh, really, every agency that they can possibly uh, find to strategically oppose the building of God's kingdom. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, We do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to be studying those passages in detail here in just a few weeks, but uh, for now, uh, listen, we're, we're involved in a battle that's, going, that's, that's raging beyond, I think, our comprehension. And I, I think this is significant to us because we happen to live in an area that is exceptionally spiritually dark. Now what do you suppose if this angelic visitor were to show up here today and were to pull the curtain back? What do you think we would see? When I first started studying at Geneva College, the very first class I took, one of the first assignments that was given was to make a spiritual map of the area in which you're doing ministry in. And I was, I was ministering out of our music store right here in Calcutta. Um, so, okay, I took a little map and I began to make a spiritual, uh, I began to do the assignment. Uh, anything that was harmful to the spirituality of the uh, area, you were to put a black dot. Um, anything helpful, leave it, leave it white. Yeah. What do you think I showed up with the next, what do you think my assignment looked like at the next class? was black. I could have just easily taken a black magic marker and practically filled in the northern pan of it. If we were to pull the curtain back, what would it look like? You know, our issues in the home and family and workplace is also against these spiritual forces of darkness. Our issues in government, you know, it's opposition to Christ, you know, doesn't oppose Buddhism, doesn't oppose Islam, doesn't oppose uh, new age thinking doesn't oppose Christian science doesn't oppose any of these things what's it oppose? it opposes Christ what's going on there it's not ultimately against us and the, the people of government or us and the media it's a war that's being fought in the heavenly places and the war on terrorism you know I sit and I watch the news and uh, I listen to them talk about strategies and I, I, the, the people that are trying to fight this war don't understand this war. They don't understand the nature of this war. How are you going to win a war you don't understand the nature of? It's not going to happen. The nature of this war, all of the terrorism that's taking place is the outpouring of this cosmic battle that's going on in the heavenly places. That's where the war is being fought. What's the answer to this? The answer to this is the return of Christ. The answer to this is the consummation of the kingdom. The answer to this is the gospel. That's the answer. When you stand up and tell that, you'll be laughed out of the, uh, uh, out of the place. That's okay. We'll let them laugh. 
Well, what is Daniel doing? Daniel stays behind. He's not out on the front lines at this point, is he? He's in the back. He's mourning and fasting, probably unnoticed by most. And he's praying. Listen, that's powerful. That's very, very powerful. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned uh, the idea of a prayer team. And I don't know if we need to put a prayer team together per se. But one thing I do know is we do and we must have a very solid commitment to praying for these strongholds to come down. That's not an option for us. I came across a story today that really touched, actually, I think it was yesterday, that really touched my heart. And uh, This is a story that was written by Eric and Laurie Meberg. Uh, Eric and, and Laurie Meberg are friends of Tammy and I. We were on a spiritual retreat with them a number of years. It's been quite a few years ago now, probably getting close to 10 years ago. Um, but they've been ministering in Muslim lands for quite some time. They're now stateside, I believe. At least Eric was at the last Presbytery meeting we were at. But uh, while they were in Turkey, which is where they've spent most of their time, uh, the, the article reads, Eric's office Uh, in downtown Marden was literally across the street from the old abandoned Protestant church building, home to the Protestant community since 1860. Now, mind you, Turkey is a largely Muslim land. Now, however, after waves of persecution and subsequent immigration, the remaining congregation shut its doors in 1960. So here they got this old church building. It's been abandoned since 1960. Now, every day, Eric would sit at his desk and pray God would see fit to once again use the church for his glory. Recently, our prayers were answered when the modern Protestant church was reopened for the public. Through the faithful witness of Pastor Ender, who leads the congregation, and generous donations from saints in American Europe, including former church members, the old dilapidated buildings were, was restored to a beautiful old stone church. At the opening service, people came throughout Turkey, Iraq, and Syria to celebrate this historic occasion. The church will now be open seven days a week, welcoming visitors, sharing its history, and the hope of the gospel. Already, they're averaging 15 to 20 visitors a day. Pray that indeed God's glory will, would be evident in this place. And here's a little excerpt from Pastor Ender. He writes, the Marden, the Marden Protestant Church building has entered public life again, with a wonderful opening ceremony worthy of the Lord through his mercy and miracle and through your generosity. Among guests were the mayor, the province's member of parliament, the regional president, and other official representatives as well. Listen to this part. The church was entirely full. So much so that some had to stand outside. May the Lord's name be exalted. The church was entirely full for the Sunday worship service as well. What was the foundation of this? Eric, looking out his window, praying from his desk. Now, Most of you are not called in the way that I've been called. Most of you 
you're not called where you're to stand in public places and do what I'm doing right now. That's fine. And maybe many of you are pretty skittish about doing this in semi-public places. That's fine. Because really, we really need people that are behind closed doors praying for this work, don't we? And we all can be involved in that, can we not? And I would submit to you that that is really the engine of the whole thing. Seeking God's face behind closed doors. While those of us who have been called to go out into this kind of context. You know, ask yourself this morning, are you in Christ this morning? If the answer is yes, somebody prayed for you. Probably more than one person. But I can guarantee at least one bent their knees for you. Or you wouldn't be there. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sure have been challenged this morning, Father, with this text. Father, we confess that Often we do have no idea what's going on with the church around this world. And it's not possible for us to know everything that's going on, Father. But we do confess that in our luxury and in our comfort, Father, we don't pay attention. Father, we confess that probably we've not cried much over the last week or month or maybe even year over the persecution and the suffering that our brothers and sisters are undergoing around this globe. Father, we look at Daniel and we see how unlike we are, Father. And then, Father, we wonder why there's so few conversions. Father, it's very, very clear uh, to us this morning, Father, that, uh, Lord, we've, we've got to change. And, Lord, we recognize we cannot change by ourselves. We also recognize that change often takes place very slowly. But we call on you this morning, Father, to give us grace. We call on you this morning, Father, that, Lord, we would really truly get in the game. We would truly uh, get involved in, in praying for the, the souls of those who are around us. As we look at the condition of the church, as we look at the condition of the valley, as we see that uh, largely much of the building uh, of the church has really been abandoned, uh, Father, may we look at Daniel and may we be encouraged that you have promised to build your church. So, Father, to these ends we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.